we are so appreciative of support from listeners like you. Those of you who listen to all the episodes, who have subscribed, who who connect with us on social media, we love hearing from you. We love hearing your ideas and just getting your feedback. Another way that would be so, so helpful to the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast is if you can write us a review anywhere that you get your podcasts. This would be great, especially on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. If you could take a few minutes, write us a review. That would be fantastic and very much appreciated. Thank you very much for your support. Welcome back to the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. Last week on the podcast, we discussed vaccine hesitancy in the Black and Indigenous communities in Canada. Now, there are a number of reasons why the Black and Indigenous communities are vaccine hesitant, so make sure that you listen to last week's episode. To hear more on this issue, I'm joined today by a special guest, Dr. Akwatu Kenti, who sits on the Black Scientist Task Force on Vaccine Equity. The Black Scientist Task Force is an initiative created by Black community organizations and leaders and the City of Toronto in the face of disproportionately high rates of COVID infection in Toronto's Black community. When I say disproportionate, I mean it's really disproportionate, or was really disproportionate. Toronto's Black community makes up 9% of the population, but in August of last year, this group's case rate was 407 percent higher than the rest of the population. In addition to these disparities, members of the Black community were sharing that they were more hesitant to take the vaccine than any other racial group. So combine higher rates of infection, transmission, hospitalization, and death with hesitancy to vaccinate, and a public health disaster was looming. In light of this information, leaders and healthcare specialists from Toronto's Black community came together to make a number of recommendations to the City of Toronto, one of which was to start a Black Scientist Task Force so that leaders from the Black community who are public health experts could speak directly to community to answer any questions that they had to, and who really understood the context for where this hesitancy was coming from. So our guest for today, as I mentioned, his name is Dr. Akwatu Kenti. He is a special advisor to the City of Toronto's COVID-19 Equity Initiative and is chair of the Black Scientist Task Force on Vaccine Equity. He is an affiliate scientist with the Institute for Mental Health Policy Research at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health and is an assistant professor within the Dalla School of Health at the University of Toronto. Dr. Akwatu is formerly the Assistant Deputy Minister for Ontario's Anti-Racism Directorate, as well as CAMH's Director of Transformative Global Health. He has a PhD in Health Policy and Equity from York University. I am very happy to have a special guest joining me today. His name is Dr. Akwatu. I have just read out his bio, uh, but I will have him introduce himself. Hi, Dr. Akwatu. How are you? Hi. Hi. How are you? Good day. Good day. Thank you for this opportunity and thank you for reading my bio. (laughs) You don't often do that, but hey, I appreciate it. So, you know, I like to um, think of myself in three ways. First and foremost, as a father and a grandfather, because, you know, I have five children and two grandchildren. So I'm very concerned about the future generations and especially about climate change and all of the uh, warnings that we seem to be getting. I'm really concerned that um, the world we're leaving for our children has to be better than what we're seeing now, right? So Mm -hmm. secondly, I I think of myself as a Canadian. 
an African and a Caribbean person. And I've been in Canada now for almost 50 years. I'm very proud to be a citizen of this country. Mm-hmm. My Black identity is grounded in Africa, in, in Africa's river valley civilizations, the Nile especially. And um, it's matured and nurtured by the culture of Trinidad and Tobago, um, mm-hmm. which is intrinsic and a very important part of my identity, which may come up in our conversation. <laughs> and, and thirdly, you know, I'm a scientist and a humanist, ground my work in empirical evidence so as to advance the interests of the field that I'm in, public health, but as well as um, the community that I belong to, the Black um, c- communities of Toronto. And I'm a humanist because I'm really concerned about the future of humanity in mm-hmm. some, not just Black humanity, but all humanity. We're one. There's only one human race. And so I like to have that perspective inform my work as well. And so mm-hmm. those are the three dimensions of Aquatu Kenti. <laughs> Beautifully said. I love the way you've described what your Black identity is. I'm going to have to review how I say mine. I wanted to really speak to your experience when it comes to public health, but also your experience with the Black Scientist Task Force, which I've given a little bit of an introduction before, and we will go into that. But do you really want to hear a little bit about your journey as well? It's great to see more Black young people getting into the field of public health, um, into the health profession, but there's still too few of us. Can you tell us about what your journey in in public health has looked like? Well, my journey has been sort of a convoluted one. You know, Mm -hmm. I started off in economics, then I went to political science, political economy, um, substance abuse, and here I am in public health. But um, one of the things that um, I found so useful about about public health was the emphasis on prevention. I appreciated um, the fact that public health realizes the importance of economics, political science, history, the social determinants and health and health equity, which are as, as important as medicine and diagnostic tools for the health and well-being of populations that are racialized, that are oppressed. Representation matters, and our absence from the field of medicine and public health has had life and death consequences, which we are seeing or we've seen in the early days of COVID-19, which we must learn from to ensure that as future pandemics come upon us, which might include unanticipated consequences of climate change, that we are better positioned as as a community of communities to sort of um, prevent some of the worst health inequities, the morbidities and mortality that we experience as a consequence of covid Yeah, so I was drawn to public health through different channels. It's so interesting, too, to hear how uh, economy, economics, political science, how all these different sectors and and areas have really informed the kind of the perspective that you have about health, which you're absolutely correct. Health is more than just like the health care that comes when, when you're sick. It's all of the ways in which your body, your mental health are affected before you get to that point and the economic, political, social reasons for that. Um, yeah, so I, I think public health is a field that, is really relevant to today's um, health professionals, especially because um, we need more prevention. You know, by the time things happen, it's too late. Mm -hmm. The consequences. Just want to say that um, um, one of the sort of public health insights that I'll draw to your attention is the same communities that are affected um, inequitably by COVID-19 in terms of positivity rates, hospitalization rates, mortality rates, are the same uh, similarly affected by gun violence, homicide victimization, HIV, AIDS, um, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, race intersects with social determinants to produce 
some of the worst outcomes for people who are precariously perched, mm-hmm. as many Black communities are. Yeah, absolutely. So how, what was the turning point for you to go from, from the different fields that you were in into public health? What led you there? The spark that led me into that direction was the realization in um, when I developed or let, co-led the development of a substance abuse program for Black youth that um, by the time substance use became problem use, it was almost too late. You know, the harms, the health harms that were caused by drug use and alcohol use um, could be mitigated and should be mitigated early so that people, young people, as well as their families, realize that recreational use need not lead to problem use with the right amount of of intervention and support, we could actually sort of mitigate the risk by recognizing risk to begin with and being vigilant and being supportive of our young people who often got punished for doing what most young people do, but um, criminalized and punished because of it. So in in helping to set up what, what, what was supposed to be a treatment program, I really gained appreciation for the importance of prevention. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, as the saying goes. And it's true. It is absolutely true Um, in substance abuse. It's absolutely true when it comes to uh, mental health distress and PTSD and uh, many mental health problems that we have. The the sooner we can intervene, um, the better off the individuals who are affected by the mental health problems will be. Absolutely. It's interesting, too, that you mentioned that you had kind of pivoted in this direction like 30 years ago. Only now, I think, as a society, are we starting to have more empathy and understanding for why people use certain drugs or um, how addiction starts and and the social determinants of of how that happened. So interesting, the, the time that you had kind of been doing this work and starting this work was at a time when I think a lot of society is in general was not as understanding as it is now. So it must've been quite difficult. Um, that's, that's, that's true. Stigma is, is, is powerful. And um, racial stigma is so powerful that um, it shapes the perception of what you do. So if a white person is doing something, it must be innocent. And if a black person is doing something, mm-hmm. it must be suspect. So if I'm smoking cigarettes, cigarette smoking is terrible. But if somebody else of a different persuasion or hue smokes cigarettes, it looks avant-garde and mm-hmm. what have you. Yeah. And that's the nature of our societies. And we've seen that um, different substance users get different um, treatments or different responses from the society. And they're given a um, much more understanding uh, depending upon a socially constructed identity because Race is socially constructed. It's not biological reality. And so you have to, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to, to swallow when we know that um, um, black people have been so punished for smoking marijuana at rates equivalent to, to what non-blacks do. But uh, we have gone to prison in disproportionate numbers for it. And we are being forgiven unless uh, nowhere near the kind of uh, forgiveness we should be receiving today as cannabis has been legalized. Absolutely. And as the cannabis industry is legalized, it is not Black people who are benefiting from it economically either. That's right, because you need capital to get involved and you need a business plan. And most people who entered into the world of cannabis trafficking had neither. 
mm-hmm. one of the reasons they were able they they went into cannabis um, retail in the first place was because of and this is speaking purely from an economic point of view mm-hmm. ease of entry limited um, need to for certificates you didn't have to prove you had done um, cannabis trafficking one on one that ease of entry um, facilitated of course there were other factors at play in a neighbor, at a neighborhood level and a community level but mm-hmm. ease of entry very important for how for why some young people become attracted to retail in my one in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So interesting. We can talk about this forever. <laughs> you know, cannabis is a very important um, topic. Cannabis use, problem use, cannabis marketing, problem marketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> reduction. Yeah, it's a very important topic, actually. I do want to talk a little bit about the Black Scientist Task Force and your work uh, with this group. On last week's episode, we discussed vaccine hesitancy in the Black and Indigenous communities in Canada in particular, and a lot of this as a result of distrust and mistreatment in the healthcare system. And I've introduced the work of the City of Toronto's Black Scientist Task Force as a way to speak to communities to understand their fears and address these questions that they might have about vaccines. How did you get involved with the Black Scientist Task Force? Yeah, well, you know, the city had hired me as a, as a special advisor on COVID equity, on this COVID equity initiative to help us you know, support this initiative. And um, last August, I mean, the, the statistics for the Black communities of Toronto were 80% of the COVID positivity rate, although 9% of the population. So we were seeing a real um, substantial health problem, public health problem. And then um, data came out in the fall that suggested not only did the Black community have a COVID problem, it was substantially uh, mistrustful of the vaccine. I mean, they had one of the highest hesitancy rates across the country. So, you know, you you were looking at what would be a perfect storm. So um, through brainstorming with city officials as well as Black community leaders, looking at various ideas, the whole issue of trust um, came up, trusted sources, who are the trusted sources, where are they, why, can't, why aren't we hearing from them, um, bring them into the mix. And um, it's on that sort of discussion or grounding that the idea of a Black Scientist Task Force um, came up, you know, and uh, particularly because people were asking, well, Where's the black vaccine experts? All I see is white people talking about vaccines. <laughs> Bring some black people to talk about vaccines and I'll probably, I might listen. So some people in the community said. So, um, yeah, so we looked for, for um, people who were experts in um, vaccines, who had practical expertise in developing vaccines and can speak to any aspect um, of the life of a vaccine to... Um, inform our community, give our community inf- the information that they need to make the right decisions about getting a vaccine. Um, yeah, so that's, you know, brainstorming and um, um, sort of looking around the world to see what other Black communities were doing to address COVID-19 and vaccine hesitancy that were challenges for Toronto um, also helped around the world mm-hmm. and had um, sessions with uh, people in the community, community leaders um, that, that we collaborate with. And that's, that's how the whole idea emerged. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah, that's fantastic. 
I, I don't see a lot of these kind of initiatives happening in Canada. So impressive that uh, this kind of initiative came out from, from folks who are experts in this field, but who understand community, talk to community, uh, heard what their concerns were, and then were able to address it. And it's really important. You're absolutely right. I can think of my own family members who would not feel comfortable if they didn't hear it from friends or people who look like them um, yeah. based on their past experience or, or a mistrust of, of those uh, who don't understand their culture and their values. And uh, so really important initiative for sure. Yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's the first of its kind in Canada because where we brought together this talented group, what W.E.B. Du Bois might call the talented tent <laughs> in COVID. <laughs> because really, I mean, I'm, I'm really um, privileged and honored to be in the company of some of the most brilliant scientific minds that um, the Black community has in 2021. Mm-hmm. And uh, to have them all focused on challenges facing um, Toronto's Black community around COVID and the vaccination has been really something to watch. And um, yeah, I I don't think it's happened before. And Mm -hmm. I hope that it serves as a model for how other issues might be addressed. And to your point too, about the statistics, those are frightening in terms of like 30% of of, uh, those getting sick or people or Black Torontonians, especially considering many of them may work in essential work. They don't have the option to stay home. They may live with many other members of their household um, in housing, taking public transportation. So really are at a higher risk of catching COVID, spreading COVID. Um, And then when they are seriously ill, um, another just uh, horrible factor that plays into their experience with the healthcare system as well. Well, you know, there's a good news story in there. And um, I I, um, need to bring that up as well. And that is that we have actually together with the many organizations that work with the city of Toronto, brought down the COVID disparity vis-a-vis the Black population much closer to its rate of the population. So it's no longer 30%. It's about 14 or 15% of the COVID rates. So we have succeeded. I shouldn't say we. The Black communities of Toronto have succeeded in reducing their risk to a significant extent Mm -hmm. in one area in terms of COVID positivity risk. What they haven't done is successfully or effectively vaccinated themselves so as to prevent the spread of COVID completely um, as far as we can, as far as we can with vaccines. Mm-hmm. But, it, but we've actually reduced the rate Toronto has. And I think it's a very significant success story that doesn't get enough airplay because people have actually um, paid attention to um, uh, social safety, I mean, safety practices, social distancing, masking, all of the things you need to do to protect yourself from COVID. Um, mm-hmm. You see our, our communities doing it. Mm-hmm. That's very exciting. To, yeah, and it's have to reduce the rate considerably. Yeah, that's very exciting. Congratulations to, to the Black community and to the work that you and others are doing. I'm sure there's really interesting learnings that are, I mean, we still, it's, we still have... Uh, a little ways to go. But when we think about all the different ways Black folks have disparities in health and we're in in other areas, um, definitely a lot of learnings from what this group has done and and how brought in community organizations together to potentially tackle those challenges too. Um, Yeah, I'm very proud of that. Yes, absolutely. You should be, yes. (laughs) So uh, curious to hear from you in your work in public health. What are the most common things that you are hearing from Black folks about getting or not getting the COVID-19 vaccine? Um, 
Well, uh, a lot of things, really, but um, the top three, uh, two of them are common to non-Black populations, and one is really grounded in the Black experience. Vaccines were produced too quickly. The vaccines aren't safe, and the public is guinea pigs or um, are being treated as guinea pigs. And this issue of historical mistrust that um, neither the government nor the pharmaceutical companies are to be trusted. Um, you don't have the, co- the community's best interest at heart. And it's all about money, making money, um, as much money as possible off of this um, COVID situation, disaster capitalism in a localized form in Canada. That's what I've been hearing. I mean, a lot of other things as well, but I, t- I think you can all fit it under these three um, categories of or, uh, types of arguments. Mm-hmm. Historical mistrust really um, is a rational argument. I mean, um, there has been enough, um, although a lot of it is, is referencing American experiences, Tuskegee, Henrietta Lacks, Talcum Powder, what's, what's, what's contemporary or what's local is the experience of racial discrimination in the system that makes people think it's possible that they will do this to me because I've got no empathy when I needed empathy for my health concerns. Where's the concern? Where's this concern suddenly coming from? That's the kind of um, reinforcing arguments I hear around historical mistrust. I think um, what feeds historical mistrust is contemporary um, experiences of racial discrimination. So that's number one. The vaccines were produced too quickly. That's something many people think, not realizing that the vaccines, especially the mRNA vaccines, built on decades of work. And that what really allowed it to be produced quickly was money. That the problem involved threats to the lives of people in the most affluent countries, for whom money was no problem, as opposed to the, the problems that exist in Africa, for instance, for which money is always a problem. So when you throw money at a problem, you can solve that problem pretty quickly, as we saw with COVID-19 and the vaccines. That's why it was produced expeditiously. And that it's the third argument about safety and public um, being guinea pigs. You know, we, what we have tried to do in the past year is show that safety protocols were kept, were maintained to the highest degree as with other vaccines. It's just that we're in a pandemic, so we need emergency authorization to get things out there as quickly as possible, to save as many lives as quickly as possible. But every time you address one issue, you know, there's a variation in the argument, something else comes up. But at the bottom of it, I think um, trust is an emotional thing and it's hard to acquire and easy to lose. And for Black people, um, when you say you should trust the vaccine, something I don't even say anyway, I say assess the risk of the vaccine, balance it off with the risk of COVID. You'll see that COVID is killing you at 32 per 100,000 per capita, about that rate, whereas there's, it's, yeah, there's no equivalent for the vaccines. So it's completely in your interest to take that vaccine as soon as possible, to protect yourself as soon as possible. And the companies, the governments, it's their job to earn your trust. Godspeed to them. I hope they work to earn your trust. But right now, we're in a pandemic. You have to make a quick decision. Should I take the vaccine? Here's the evidence for the vaccine. Here's the evidence for COVID. (laughs) Wait and make a quick decision and a balanced decision. But never say I didn't have the information to make that decision. Um, That's very important.
Mm-hmm. That's a good point too. Unfortunately, there, I don't think it's hard to get information, but there is so much misinformation also out there. And that trans that feels like it transfers faster than, than accurate information. That's correct. Um, we've never before had a pandemic, of course, for most of us, unless we're people over 100 years old. <laughs> Not <laughs> many. A pandemic during the time of social media is something else. I mean, like, we didn't have WhatsApp, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have Instagram, we didn't have TikTok. And now that we have it, and it's, it's great, young, young people love it, but at the same time, it allows for um, a lot of traffic and misinformation, especially misinformation that um, specifically designed to sow mistrust. Um, it's not just that the misinformation is out there, it's that it's designed to sow mistrust. And it's doing it very well. It's, it's um, impacting our, our citizenry and our trust in our public health system at the very time we need to have the most trust so that we can just get on with what we have to do to protect our populations, our pop- larger population, subpopulation. I can imagine how many folks have maybe come to you with saying, oh, well, I read this somewhere um, and that's why I don't trust the vaccines. Um, so I can imagine a lot of your job is maybe just trying to fight back the misinformation that you're hearing. Oh, yeah. And, it's, and like I said, it's, it's metamorphosizing all the time. Fertility. Mm-hmm. The vaccines will affect fertility. I won't be able to get pregnant. My husband won't be able to make me pregnant. And I don't know how many times we've, we've said that, um, although during the clinical trials, they didn't take pre- pregnant women and they didn't encourage people to get pregnant. That's, they discouraged people from getting pregnant during the trials because, of course, it's, it, we were in an unknown territory. Nonetheless, people did get pregnant during the clinical trials indicating really clearly that vaccines didn't stop people from getting pregnant. And subsequently, almost 100,000 women have been, who are pregnant have been vaccinated and there's been no ill effects from the vaccines. But you say that and then someone with seeming three or four letters after their name comes up and says, I know this, it looks like this. <laughs> and they're doing it in very sophisticated ways. The misinformation isn't just... Mm-hmm. Uh, common parlance the, the misinformation is fairly sophisticated and people say wow if Dr. X says this there must be some truth to it and yeah usually there's a little bit of truth um, shrouded by a lot of misinformation and lies mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. one the fertility one uh, the DNA one is going to um, harm your DNA or play with your DNA or instill chips in your DNA mm-hmm. and we have to point out the biological impossibilities of some of that yeah, and, yeah. And there yes. is a chip already, and it's in our phones. Yeah, yeah it's our phones. It could actually be in our, our aspect <laughs> of or our Tylenol because the same companies are making the medicines that we willingly take. Yeah, but somehow they, we we expect them to be uh, malevolent bodies when it comes to the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. So that's an ongoing challenge, and I actually think it's a it's a challenge for the society for the long term that uh, we've entered a new era of debate or non-debate around basic empirical evidence. And the question is, how do we get past this so that we can have credit, we can recognize credible sources of information and be able to make decisions based upon credible information as opposed to mixing credible with information that's really opinions from sources that ought not to be trusted. On your point, too, about where folks are getting information, um, like this mistrust is, I I think you said it brilliantly, how it is uh, historical, but also supported by like our contemporary experience with healthcare and how there 
we often look to the United States for data and information when it comes to like, for example, um, the number of black women who die during childbirth in the United States, we have that kind of data and information. But in Canada, we really are lacking in terms of race-based data. Um, curious if, if you, you've seen that as well, or, or if you have seen how that, if that's getting better, if it's improving. Well, it's not improving. I mean, but we, what we have um, seen is that race-based data is critical for, for public health planning and public health action during a pandemic. That without race-based data, we would not be even aware of um, some of these critical disparities that we're having to address in terms of who gets COVID, how they get COVID, how to engage them in, in um, distancing and protective measures and getting vaccinated in real time now, right now, you know. So, um, so yeah, we, we need to institutionalize race-based data gathering in health in our province and across the country. But race, race data must be equity grounded. You can't just collect race data for its own sake. You got to contextualize the collection of race data by the equity purposes that it will be put. Otherwise, it's of no use. You shouldn't collect it. And so um, health equity is sort of the other side of the coin for race data collection. It has to be, have a very explicit health equity purpose built into the collection so that whoever collects it and everybody should, who's involved in the healthcare sector should be collecting it, but there should also be a commitment and a responsibility to take action when disparities are identified, especially racialized disparities. That's very important because we see there are many jurisdictions that collect race-based data announce the race-based data findings, but then do nothing about it. And we don't want to be that type of jurisdiction. So we need race-based data for sure. COVID-19 has exposed our community's um, vulnerabilities on on multiple fronts and dimensions. And we don't want to repeat this. We want to get ahead of the curve when it comes to health risk. And uh, the only way that we can do so and sort of benchmark where we are and benchmark and evaluate the effectiveness of various initiatives that are used to reduce our vulnerabilities is with um, race-based data. It's unfortunate, you know, because um, by collecting race-based data, you sort of reify the idea of race, which is a social construction, not a biological one. I mean, you have to keep repeating that. You know, I'm not, racism, biological reality, but it's social reality. And it creates real lived experiences for people who are perceived as belonging to a particular race, and that's what we want to address. We don't want to say race is biological and here we go. We want to say, no, race is not biological. It translates into lived uh, um, experiences for people who are perceived as belonging to a particular race. Mm-hmm. You bring up a very good point because if we do not collect the data in a responsible way, that really does understand like contextual, the socioeconomics behind um, that data, then it can also be misconstrued to go in a different direction where stereotypes may come out of, of the results that you see with health-based, uh, race-based data collection. I'm thinking about the uh, really unfortunate story of J- Joyce Equahan, the Indigenous woman who died in the hospital, re- receiving like racism and racist treatment from staff, and these stereotypes about what her health conditions were um, and why she was in there. And so I can see how perhaps the data could maybe skew in a different direction, if not used responsibly. Right, right. And that's, a, that's often the argument that people use as to why they don't want to collect race-based data. But I think, you know, that... Um, Stereotypes and stigma is deeply embedded. It's there. 
it will be harnessed, it will be utilized. And I do not believe that race-based data will amplify stereotypical and stigmatizing risks that significantly that it warrants us not to collect race-based data. It's the reverse. I think we need race-based data in order to substantiate the extent to which stereotypes and stigmas are creating health inequities through racialized decision-making that people aren't often aware they're even making. And we, we will thus be in a position to respond on the basis of evidence. The other thing is um, no data, no problem. Uh, you know, as long as all you have is, is anecdotal evidence, that's all you have. You never get complete commitment to action. That's been my experience. That's a good point. But wanted to hear what else you think needs to happen to reach more Black folks about vaccine hesitancy. So we talked about the work of like Black Scientist Task Force, for example, the need to fight misinformation. I'm not sure what the best way that would look, but is there anything else that you think, like other ways that we can reach folks about this? Yeah, we need to um, engage key influencers, cultural leaders in the Black community, faith leaders, to step up to the plate and take clear positions on the vaccine so that we can communicate with confidence, the need to get vaccinated as quickly as possible. Um, there's several trends that are afoot. People are talking about vaccination pa- um, passports. They're talking about mandata- mandating vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. We need to get ahead of that and get vaccinated so that whatever people decide won't affect us. That's number one. We need to also um, remove all access barriers for not getting vaccinated. Time, technology, transportation, convenience, et cetera. And we need to up our game. You know, the micro-targeting um, has to just be amplified. We need to go door-to-door. And in California, the door-to-door approach has worked. But you don't just pick up and drive to a building and walk through the building. <laughs> you got to know where the unvaccinated are, who the unvaccinated are. You got to call them. You got to build, you know, use your trusted um, neighborhood sources. You know, you, you got to lay the groundwork and then you, you go in and, just go to just take the vaccines to them. All the people who want to be vaccinated, I think, have been vaccinated. And so we're dealing with people who either don't want to be vaccinated or who don't have the time or the means or the will. And we just have to remove those considerations and just take the vaccines to them. That's where we are right now, I think. Mm-hmm. Not, not, it's, not, it's not just us in Toronto, it's North America. I mean, like yes. right across North America, it's it's similar trends are occurring. We're all sort of learning from the same playbook as we go. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard about the door-to-door campaign. Oh, yeah. In, in, um, I forget the name of the state in California or the jurisdiction in California that did it, but they effectively halved um, the disparity between the Blacks and Latino population and the white population around vaccination. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It can, it can be done and must be done. Mm-hmm. Without all the stops, let's, let's just get this job done. Well, we can do it. I think we can do it. And I think um, we have the resources, the assets, the health assets. Toronto isn't the only player. The province is a player. Right. Mm-hmm. The province has to back Toronto to the health. We need all, all hands on deck mm-hmm. in this effort. Mm-hmm. We focus mm-hmm. on what saves the most lives. Yeah, that's where the humanist comes in. That's where sure. the humanist comes in. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Um, black life matters. And the reason we have to say that isn't because um, we're saying that black life is, has more value than other life. It's actually the reverse. Black life matters because 
we see time and again where decision-making and resources suggest that it's of less value than other lives. And so we want to close that gap so that we have equity in the kind of um, understanding and approaches taken to save Black lives, because it really does matter. And, 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 And when I say that, it's not just about the non-Black community understanding and appreciating that. It's about about Black people understanding and appreciating that this is a system we all socialized and grew up in. So that we need to, sometimes we need to have Black clinics because there are many Black people who are more comfortable, feel more safe going to a Black clinic. We're not doing it because we want to do it. We're doing it because we have to do it in order to save as much lives as quickly as possible and just be effective in our public health work. Powerfully said. Thank you. That's, that's the way to end. <laughs> I don't think I could add of anything of more substance to that. I think that was really, really well said and well, well summarized. And also the thing, other point that we didn't discuss is the mental health consequences of COVID, yeah. which are huge, which are problematic and which promises to um, sort of in, amplify the health burden that we already carry. Mm-hmm. Because many people who went into the pandemic feel that they were fairly well positioned from a mental health point of view, but saw their mental health erode and feel that they're in a vulnerable, precarious place right now. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, what do we do to reduce the risk to um, the many moms and dads and young children for whom homeschooling wasn't a pleasant experience and who may have fallen behind and suffered mentally as a result of that falling behind and uh, stress associated with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have some significant problems to address. So we actually have to raise our mental health literacy, reduce our stigma so that we um, have more empathy and more understanding for how mental health problems are expressed mm-hmm. and that we can respond accordingly. That's mm-hmm. a big one. Yeah, that is, that is a huge one. And it, bring, it, it brings up a really interesting point that you made about how it will take probably months, maybe even years for us to really understand the consequences of this pandemic on folks and mental health and physical health. I think, yeah, that's a really important point. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kwatu. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you. I think you've opened my eyes and my mind to, to a lot more on this topic. So I really appreciate you joining. Well, thank you much for asking those questions. Okay, thank you were so nice much. to meet you. Thank you so much. The work of the Black Scientists Task Force and the numerous organizations across the city and province have made huge strides for the Black community in lowering the vaccine infection rate. I should take some time to shout out the numerous organizations who have been working alongside the Black Scientists Task Force for Vaccine Equity. They are and include the Black Creek Community Health Center, Black North Initiative, the Black Opportunities Fund, Black Physicians Association of Ontario, Canadian Black Clergy and Allies, Taibu Community Health Center, the Black Health Alliance, the Canadian Multicultural Inventors Museum, the Harriet Tubman Institute, the Jamaican Canadian Association, the Walnut Foundation, the Wellesley Institute, and Women's Health in Women's Hands. We're going to link the Black Scientist Task Force's website and reports in our show notes. So go and take a look at the work that they're doing. Sign up for any of their upcoming town halls and share it with friends and family who may be vaccine hesitant or have questions about the COVID vaccine. Beverly Osizua is our researcher. Jade Sullivan manages our social media. And I am your host, Nora Yunus. Thank you for joining us today and see you next week. Bye.